Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with someone I'm so excited to bring to you guys. I I have been such a a fan um, of her work and of her incredibly useful knowledge and and sharing of that knowledge throughout the pandemic. Um, I'm here with Dr. Caitlin Jettelina. She's best known for her work on your local epidemiologist, which is her substack that has become a Bible to me and thousands of other people who are looking for clear, concise, on the ground, real world understanding of what is happening and where we are week by week as we, you know, drone on through this pandemic. Um, Dr. Jenalina is an epidemiologist, a biostatistician, an assistant professor of epidemiology at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. She's also a mom. Dr. Jenalina, thank you so much for joining us today. I am just so grateful for your time and your brain on all this. I have approximately 10 million questions. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. For anyone who has not read your incredible, incredible Substack, which if you have not, pause this podcast, come back to it, but pause it, go sign up for it. It is incredibly useful. But but for people who have not had the chance to see it yet, explain a little bit about how you got started in writing these weekly and um, more frequent posts and how you went from, you know, your job as a professor, an epidemiologist during the day to creating this incredible resource for people who are looking for a clear understanding of where we are in the pandemic. Yeah. You know, it was a, it's been a really kind of organic thing back in May, 2020, you know, I was really just like every other epidemiologist. I was paying attention to what was happening in Italy and, of course, in China and Iran. And then uh, COVID-19 hit the United States. And I was up late at night just looking at all the numbers on Excel, um, working with my colleagues over at the WHO. And the dean of my school actually knew I was really paying attention to very closely to the patterns and asked me to update staff, students, um, and other faculty about what I was seeing. And so I started them as an email. I called them my data-driven updates and signed it, love your local epidemiologist, because I was. Um, (laughs) And then a few days later, one of my students asked me if I could just start posting it on Facebook so she could share it with her uh, family and friends. And so what started off as, you know, a small group of about 30 staff and faculty uh, has grown and grown and grown. Um, And the last time I pulled the numbers, I think it was like a reach of 130 million people. So it's been absolutely insane. That is insane. And and I will say you are doing this on top of your your full-time job with two little girls. This is something that you're doing at night after bedtime and after a full day of work. And you, it's, it's astonishing to me that you are pulling that off. Yeah. I don't know how I have, I will say um, it's, but it's been a a labor of love. Um, you're right. You know, I call it my third job. You know, I have my girls, um, I, you know, they're two under two and a half. So I had one of them during the pandemic, 
Um, and then, yeah, I have my day job and at night I just write. Um, and in the morning with a fresh brain, I read over it and post it and, uh, it it seems to be working okay so far. (laughs) I would say that's, that's an understatement, but you, you bring up the fact that you're, you're posting with and, and writing and looking at the data with such great frequency. And it really has become a go-to for me and obviously for uh, you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are getting the the privilege of looking at what you're analyzing and seeing every single week. But I'm curious, as we record this, it is January 13th. Where are we in the pandemic? What are your feelings, thoughts as you look at the numbers this week? I understand this is an ever-moving, ever-changing virus, but I, I want your brain on where we are. For anyone listening to this, what should we know? What's new this week? What are you looking towards next week? Just paint the clearest picture of where we are uh, as as Omicron maybe peaks or we're in the midst of a peak. Just explain to me. where we are today. You know, I think where a lot of us are individually is exhausted. Mm -hmm. Um, We have been going at this thing for about two years now, and it's disrupted our lives and it's currently disrupting our lives with this Omicron. You know, we're really in the middle of an Omicron wave. So right now on a national level, we are seeing cases like we've never, ever seen before. Um, an average of 800,000 people testing positive each day, which has really strained, if not we're at capacity of our our testing here in the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. And as far as cases, you know, it looks like we're getting some signals from the Northeast that some states are peaking, like New York and Massachusetts, and they're the leaders of Omicron, the case leaders. And so, Um, This is a good sign. Uh, We're also seeing signs over in Europe from Denmark and the UK who have peaked, and they're about two weeks ahead of the United States. So we think as far as cases will peak maybe in the beginning of February and come down pretty rapidly, uh, like we saw in South Africa. Now, unfortunately, that's just cases, though. Uh, Hospitalizations and deaths lag cases case patterns by about three to four weeks. And so we still have a little while for the hospitalizations and and deaths to peak. The other, you know, one thing that's really been interesting during the Omicron wave is this phenomenon of decoupling. It's the cases are exponentially increased. I mean, not even exponent, they're like vertically increasing And hospitalizations are increasing, but certainly not at the same rate. And this is the first time we've ever seen this in the pandemic is this separation. Um, And And what does that say to you? I I can imagine what that says to you, but, but spell it out for people listening. Yeah. So what it means, it's really two things going on at the same time. One is our vaccines are working. Our immunity Mm. is working, is keeping people out of hospitals. Thank goodness. Um, The second thing that it's showing is that Omicron is intrinsically less severe, which means that compared to someone who would get a Delta infection, you know, the, the rate of severe infection is actually lower. Now, that doesn't mean 
let's not worry about Omicron because it's actually still more severe than the original virus, but we'll take all the help we can get. Um, and so that's the, that's the good news. The problem is with such a contagious virus, that little that we gained with the decrease in severity is already being taken over by how much this virus is touching people. And this week we broke hospitalization records. Um, I think it's up to, I don't know, 145,000 hospitalizations today. And uh, that's far more than we had last winter. So it's an astounding number. And, And I think, you know, at the beginning of all of this, nearly two years ago, we had an influx in hospitals. And obviously we, we saw story after story and, and number after number that showed that we were running out of room in hospitals and doctors were completely overtaxed and overworked. And, um, it was a really grim scenario. And right now we're seeing these numbers rise at, at unprecedented levels, but it's, it's different, right? This, this time around, the problem is not, we're running out of ventilators. Um, we're running out of room in the hospitals and, and patients are severely, severely ill. It seems to me, and you tell me if I'm right here, that they're running out of staff in hospitals now because so many people are coming down with a contagious virus and they're not able to come to work even though their symptoms may not be life-threatening or or severe. They're still sick with a highly communicable disease. And so if there are doctors and nurses and support staff in hospitals who can't come to work because they're infected, then you're going to have a different kind of problem in the healthcare system. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So there's, yeah, several things going on. One is there is severe disease at the hospitals. Um, Unvaccinated people are not doing well right now. Um, But then that's added on top of this isn't a refreshed, ready to work workforce. This is a poor workforce that's been at the front line of this pandemic for the past two years and is just exhausted. And then three is what you're saying. It's a highly contagious virus. And so even if, you know, a patient's not coming to the hospital uh, with severe COVID, say they have a broken leg and they get, they have COVID-19, well, that really impacts the staff. And so staff are, yeah, away for now it's five days and that adds up. Uh, you know, a bed isn't considered an available bed at a hospital unless there's staff there. And so it's uh, put a real strain on the healthcare system as well as healthcare providers at an individual level. They're just tired. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor in chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15 for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Doctors are exhausted, but everyone is exhausted at this point. It's it's a completely exhausting thing for everyone involved. I'm curious. You you mentioned the fact that we could possibly see a peak uh, early February. 
what happens after the peak? How does this play out when we've we've seen the 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 worst of it or seemingly the worst of it, and then things precipitously decline? Then what happens? Yeah, that's I think the like billion dollar question right now. Um, I'll tell you what I hypothesize, although I certainly have been wrong in the past, is that this virus is going to continue to mutate. Um, and we may see another really, you know, variant of concern or high consequence in 2022. I think the big question is how long will this Omicron immunity last? How long will it stick? Because if it works as well as before, like with Delta, we probably won't get another big wave until next winter. Um, The problem is that we don't know how long Omicron lasts. And a lot of us are a little uh, hesitant because there is less severe disease with Omicron. So that may mean it wanes faster, the protection. So we don't know. You know, I will say that typically coronaviruses, you know, outside of a pandemic, they're seasonal. Uh, Coronaviruses thrive during the winter. There's no coincidence that our two biggest waves were during the winter. And so what I suspect will start happening slowly but surely is we're going to start seeing these seasonal patterns like we do with the flu, that coronavirus or COVID-19 will uptick in the winter and then go down in the summer. And it's just really going to be the reality of our life, and we're going to learn to live with it um, with the more and more and more tools we're getting in our tool belt to help fight it. And so, yeah, you know, time will tell. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. The one thing that I do know is that this virus has really made us as epidemiologists uh, humble and recognize that we don't know what it'll do next and we really need to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. I think I think that that's right and and you saying that makes me think about um how people I I feel like in in public health particularly those people who are in charge of um our national response to this it feels like there hasn't been a ton of preparation for the worst. And I know that you've been watching very carefully what's been messaged out from Washington, from the CDC, and even the White House. And I know that you've also been seeing the reaction to that from the public, particularly on Twitter and and all the memes online. And it's, to me, it's astounding, the guidance that we've gotten. It is so confusing. And I know that there are a ton of jokes about it, and, and rightfully so. But it's not that funny. I think that everyone is so confused about what is going on and what you're supposed to do. And it didn't have to be like this, right? It didn't have to be a very confusing thing. Of course, this virus is moving fast and things are changing rapidly, but there is really no one central explanation of what we should do and how to go about getting these tools that you're talking about. We we do know so much more than we knew two years ago. And yet there was a an, an article that I read yesterday, one of my colleagues, Joe Pompeo, pointed it out to me uh, that the CDC was weighing whether it would recommend higher quality face masks. And that to me was like the complete epitome of, of, of the messaging that we're getting and not getting that we're still 
it's 2022 and the CDC is weighing whether it will recommend these higher quality face masks. Can you just help me understand what you think Washington is getting wrong and how we can message this better so that people can actually have clear guidance on what they should be doing? Yeah, I think you make really two really great points in there is that one, it's the lack of preparation. Uh, We continue to have a reactive response in the United States rather than a proactive response, and it continues to exhaust everyone. It continues to lose lives. Um, we, We knew Omicron was coming. We know the next variant is coming. There is no question about that. Um, I think the question is what, how we're going to learn from these previous waves. Um, how do we get a better supply of testing, for example? Uh, how do we get them delivered to people's houses? How do we get them reimbursed, not just for people that have insurance, but truly to the people that really need it reimbursed, those that are under and uninsured? I have not yet to see a plan about that. And how are we going to address and listen to the unvaccinated and understand their concerns to address them? And how are we going to ventilate spaces? Um, it's just, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. There's been a complete lack of preparation. And part of that is, I will say, you know, this is the first real big epidemic that's hit the United States. Other countries have fared far better than the United States because this isn't their first epidemic. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. Vietnam, they're hit hard with MERS and SARS back in early 2000s. And they did not respond well at all, but they learned from that. So they had a better response for SARS-CoV-2. And so if anything, I hope that we self-reflect as a nation to not only prepare for the next wave, but for the next pandemic. Um, Mm. And then the second thing that you bring up really well, you know, clearly is the communication has been abysmal. Um, You know, CDC... I will, they have very smart scientists there. They have the best of the best there. So I don't really, I don't ever question their science. What I question is their communication of that science and the dissemination and implementation of their science. Um, They Hmm. don't take into account uh, behavior differences. They don't listen to people, you know, just the public And they sometimes follow the science too strictly to have this very confusing guidance where the the implementation is impossible and people throw up their hands and like say, screw it. I'm not going to isolate at all because I don't understand it and I don't blame them. And so, so I think that communication aspect needs to be changed yesterday Um, And then I think it also needs to be integrated into that preparation for one, the next wave and then the next pandemic. And I haven't seen any plans or discussion around that. Oh, I think I think 100 percent. And that's why I'm I'm so excited to have you here, because I think you do communicate so clearly. Can I ask you just a series of questions of what people should be doing, people who have thrown up their hands and have said, well, I don't know if I should isolate. Should I isolate? Should I be testing? How do I even get a test? What mask should I be wearing? So can I just ask you a couple of questions that I know I've wondered and I'm sure everyone listening has wondered? Let's do it. 
Okay. So if you are in close contact with someone who tests positive for COVID right now, what should I do? Yeah. So it depends on your vaccination status. If you're boosted, you don't have to do anything and you're asymptomatic. Now, if you're not fully vaccinated, which I'm including a booster or not vaccinated at all, you need to isolate. And I'm actually pulling up (laughs) rules because it's so confusing. Um, But yeah, you need to isolate and quarantine for five days and uh, try and test on that fifth day as possible. Okay. So if I test positive on that fifth day, what do I then do? So if you test positive for COVID-19, regardless of vaccination status, you need to isolate and stay home for five days. Now, if those symptoms are resolving um, or you don't have any symptoms, uh, you can leave isolation at day five, according to the CDC. Do you think that's a good idea? No, no, it's a terrible idea. Okay, so then what should I do? What is the best idea? I'm not asking the CDC guidelines. I'm asking you what you, as a very smart person who has studied this virus, would tell your best friend to do if they test positive, regardless of what the CDC is saying. Yeah, so I'll tell you, you know, we, I'll tell you what we did as a family. Uh, We just got out of positivity. I wasn't, we we weren't leaving our house. We weren't um, until everyone tested negative on an antigen test, Mm. period. Um, Antigen tests do a really good job at telling if you're infectious or not. And uh, those antigen tests were positive about eight days after uh, symptoms started. And so I was not comfortable. Uh, going out in the public uh, until those were negative, period. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that that makes so much sense. And and that brings me to another question is, is what tests should we all try to be using? I know it's so hard to get hands on tests right now. Uh, and, and if you are getting a PCR test from a lab, the, the, the turnaround times are, are astronomically high right now. But on what day should we be testing? Which test? And what should you be listening to? Yeah, honestly, right now, the best test to answer the question we want answered, which is, am I infectious, is a rapid antigen Mm -hmm. test. So if you have the ability to go find one, stock up on them at your house um, and use them. And if you're exposed, uh, a close exposure, or if you start to have symptoms, even if it's the sniffles, you know, you isolate and then wait two days and, and take that test and see what it is. Now, because I'm talking to you in this wave of Omicron, if you get a negative rapid antigen test within two days, I wouldn't trust it. I would take it another 24 hours later because one, transmission is so high in the community, and two, unfortunately, rapid antigen tests aren't very good at the front end telling if you're positive or not. They're really good um, at the back end of when you should leave isolation. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I try and tell people, you know, be a little weary if you have symptoms and you get a negative on an antigen test right now. That makes total sense. What kind of mask are you guys wearing? What are what kind of mask are you adults wearing? And then what kind of masks would you put on your kid? I know your kids are really little and, and probably not super masking, but what kind of mask would you tell friends who have kids who are, you know, four, five, six, seven years old? 
Yeah, you know, it's time to step up and step up your mask and get an N95. Um, I cannot believe the CDC has sat on this decision for a couple of days now. Um, and it looks like they're not even going to come out and recommend them. Uh, but why is that? Well, so what they say is that be, they think they said that any mask is fine. Um, they want someone, they rather someone mask with a cloth mask than nothing at all. And to, to me, is that, but isn't it like, isn't a cloth mask basically nothing at all? Uh, certainly for Omicron. Before cloth yeah. mask, I mean, before Omicron, cloth masks did okay. I would say like, I think it was like 20 or 30% reduction in transmission. But I mean, an N95 reduces transmission by 95%. And Omicron yeah. is so contagious that you just need a few particles to land uh, through your mask and, and you're going to get sick. Um, and so, yeah, it's time to step it up. So, yeah, N95s, a lot of people um, have the ability to get, well, I think it's a KN95 or a KF94, and those are fantastic. Mm-hmm. I would rank those as good as N95s right now. And that's what a lot of kids are using because they don't make N95s for kids. And so those KN95s and KF94s work really great as well. I have a a two-part question because I know you guys are just coming out of positivity. So I'm wondering about your behavior now that you have just come out of this. Would you feel comfortable traveling? Would you feel comfortable eating inside of a restaurant? And then I'd ask you the, the same question. If you hadn't come out of positivity right now, what your behavior would be like knowing what we know about Omicron? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah. So my so background, my husband and I are boosted. My kids are under five, so they're not eligible for a vaccine. And so My kids just got COVID-19. My husband and I did not. And I think that's because we had the boosters. And so, Mm. uh, you know, honestly, right now, we are at very low risk for severe disease in my house. I have a lot more concern about the risk to the community. And so I am still being fairly modest in my activities, um, you know, obviously I'm wearing really good masks at the grocery store, not necessarily because I'm worried about myself, but I don't want to contribute to community transmission and get it to some immunocompromised or some other unvaccinated kids. Um, and so I am, you know, I kind of ride the waves. I tighten up our behaviors while we're at a high. And then I let a little looser when we're at a low, like last summer, um, and I will say, you know, I, I do feel mentally a little more comfortable with my girls, not that they have some sort of immunity, um, totally. but I don't think that really has changed my behaviors. It really just relaxed my anxiety in my head a little, I think. Of course. I know that's, I, I'm, I have a six month old baby. Uh, we are all vaccinated and boosted and, and I think we're very careful with our behavior because we have a six month old who can't get vaccinated and she's little and, and it's a really scary thing for people who have kids who are under five, but particularly under one. And I think all the data seems to show, and you tell me that kids are okay, but you're starting to see 
more symptomatic kids than ever before. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You know, kids are healthy kids over the age of one are faring pretty, you know, very well, honestly. And we got really lucky about that. I will say, you know, every other disease, it's always the elderly and the youngest of the young that does the worst. And so I actually think we got really lucky with SARS-CoV-2. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not suffering from, you know, school closures. That's not means they're not going to have, they're going to have long, some of them are going to have long COVID. Some of them are going to end up at the hospital. You know, 56% of hospitalizations are among healthy children. Um, and so Mm -hmm. it seems to be a bit random, which makes it really impossible to navigate this landscape as parents. And then among those under one, I I certainly do worry about them a little more just because their immune systems aren't fully developed and they are high risk and they are very vulnerable. So um, as parents, it's our job to advocate for their health and to try and put a little bubble around them. Of course. And and as hard as that is, um, you know, parents are always putting bubbles around their kids, whether it's during flu seasons or or for other reasons. And and this is just a time where having having younger kids is is really tricky. And in another sense, having older kids has been really tricky. School closures and what's happening in the schools has been impossible for parents. And isolating has been really tricky. And the decision to send kids to school has been really tricky. I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. New York's new mayor, Mayor Adams, said that schools right now are the safest place for kids. Is that accurate? And I'm wondering why he would say that. Yeah, so I don't I don't know if it's the safest. Well, first of all, if we're talking about just the virus, um, the, yeah. the transmission in schools reflects the transmission in the community. Um, interesting what we learned was that schools aren't little super spreader events. They're basically just a mirror of what's happening in the community. So this is good or it's bad, um, whatever way you're looking at it. And that's just the virus. You know, there is so much added benefit for school, for families, um, including food security for some kids, including safety, um, including mental health resources. And just having a stable uh, schedule and support system. And so I have been a big proponent of keeping schools open for a lot of this pandemic. I think that the big if, though, is we have to do that. uh, We can do it safely. And a lot of areas in the United States and especially where I am in the South, um, haven't turned to using our tools to make schools even more safer. And I have been a bit disappointed in that. Yeah. Well, the thing that you're balancing with, with the healthy bodies in the community is the healthy minds in the community, right? So there was a recent study that showed that 25% of young people experience depression and 20% of them experience anxiety during the pandemic worldwide which that's double what we saw pre-pandemic. The mental health aspect of this for everybody, but I'm I'm talking specifically about kids here, cannot be ignored, particularly for a virus that does not seem to be 
gravely sickening children. And I'm just curious your thoughts on that as both an epidemiologist and a, and a mom. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. You know, we're having a major mental health crisis in the United States and we're having one before the pandemic. I will say that, but the pandemic has yes. really put this in hyperdrive. We've seen study after study showing that. And so we don't know, only need a plan for how to make safe, schools safe for a virus, but we seriously need a plan to address mental health among kids um, and among their parents and among everyone. But and and there's there is a plan. Um, I and I love plans. I think though that my biggest question is then how is it implemented, and we'll see. Um, you know, mental health has, has been stigmatized forever. Uh, and we need to one, start talking about it and then to do something about it. And so, um, I hope that that starts, uh, coming to the surface more and more, and we all get a little more comfortable talking about the mental health aspect of the pandemic and also just life, (laughs) I agree. And I think I think what I'm starting to hear from from so many people who have been so careful this entire stretch of time is just absolute fatigue. Um, just people being exhausted by a never-ending cycle of of in and out, in and out, and and big decisions that they have to make over holidays, over school, over um seeing family or not seeing family over traveling to see family or not traveling to see family and it's just it's just fatigue with with decisions big and small uh and not knowing what's what because there has not been the good guidance that that you and I just talked about and and I think what I'm starting to hear too is that people are saying well we're now seeing a variant that seems relatively mild that doesn't seem to be significantly more than a flu in terms of symptoms. And I don't think anyone's ever seeking out getting the flu. But what I am starting to hear is people questioning, should we just go about normal life? And if we get it, we get it. And and I have not heard that beyond, you know, the last maybe three weeks before that, it, that was not really a question that people would dare to ask. But I'm hearing that more and more. And I'm wondering if that's something you're hearing and what you would think of that attitude when it comes to COVID right now. Yeah, it's definitely something I'm hearing more and more of. And it's, yeah, a reflection of pandemic fatigue. Uh, and I, I get it. I completely get it. The problem, don't do it. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> I, you know, there's a, there's a myriad of reasons for it. But one of the most important reasons is the more this virus um, transmits, the more it jumps from person to person, the more opportunity it has to mutate. And I know that there's been a lot of talk about this virus is mutating to be more mild. And obviously this is a very attractive scenario. Unfortunately, it's just not something the virus cares about. The viruses don't care about how mild or severe it is. It only wants to survive. And so that means the next variant can be more severe and it'll probably escape our vaccines even more. And so we really, we need to focus on reducing transmission and we can do that without disrupting our lives. We can, we can do that um, by learning to live with this virus. Uh, Again, with the tools that we have, we just need to 
have those tools. And I think that's where a lot of the frustration is, is we're not equipped with those tools like other countries are. And that is very frustrating. Well, that, that makes me think, you know, I've heard so many times over the last few weeks, are we with Omicron and, and once it does peak and once the numbers do come down, are we entering the endemic phase of this where this is sort of getting into a lull? And I know you just very clearly explained that COVID viruses tend to be seasonal. So in a post-Omicron world, is this just something we are going to live with and the, the numbers will be low enough until next winter that we can sort of start to live a little bit of a normal life with those mitigation efforts at play? Or, or are we just waiting for the next Omicron that's going to sweep in whenever it sweeps in? Yeah, you know, I, I think we can be cautiously optimistic. Um, I certainly am but I will tell you that no one knows, and anyone that says they knows have, don't doesn't know what they're talking about. This virus continues to surprise us, but it sure would be nice if this stayed at low levels. Um, it didn't overwhelm our hospitals um, until we found out that you know we all need a ne- the next vaccine, and maybe we'll uptick in winters. Um, but we're not going to be closing schools or, you know, any of the, you know, lockdowns or anything that we've seen. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I am trying to hold on to hope and, um, start moving towards an endemic stage. I think all of us are ready for that. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about that hope in a second, but I have one one final um, nuts and bolts question for you. You're starting to see some places, I think Israel's rolling out a fourth booster. Uh, and, and at the same time, you're starting to hear doctors and smart people talking about the combination of people being vaccinated, boosted, and natural immunity because so many people have gotten Omicron. Um, I saw one article call it super immunity, which sounds very attractive. Um, and I'm just curious what your thought uh, thoughts are on a possible fourth booster uh, about so many people having natural immunity plus their vaccines. Where do you you see that going and, and what's your take on that? Yeah, you know, it's going to be a fascinating debate over the next couple months among, like you said, smart people of what is our, our next move with this vaccine. I am not convinced at all that we need an Omicron-specific vaccine. Our vaccines currently are working really well against hospitalization and death. And once we get an Omicron vaccine, Omicron will be done with. So I think the true next question is, how do we predict what the next variant is going to be? And how do we start getting proactive rather than reactive? And that is going to be a really difficult question to answer. Um, I don't think we're going to need a fourth booster um, very soon. I think that it will take a little time, but that time that's going to be needed is up in the air for debate. So I don't know. You know, other other viruses we immunize for, we have five vaccines, you know, HPV, we need three. Um, So there may be more vaccines. I just don't know when they'll be or uh, for what variant. 
had a post last week that I loved, uh, and it was about the good news here. And there is good news, and I think it's important that we stop and we think about the good news and and let ourselves see some silver linings. And I, I'm curious what the things are that are giving you a little bit of a glimmer of hope or silver lining as we enter this next phase. To me, it's always been the amazing teamwork that I've seen on all levels throughout this pandemic. It's sometimes hard to see, but it's absolutely beautiful. Um, The amount of science and communication among scientists during Omicron wave, and particularly the first two or three weeks when we first found Omicron, was incredible. I mean, South Africa physician or clinicians and scientists were working with people in the UK who was working with my colleagues in the United States. And we were all doing as much work as we could at night to figure out what was coming and to get a response. And so it was just, it was beautiful to watch. Um, and you know, it's, that's reflective of all of these variants, uh, and not just scientists. I think the other thing that we forget about, and I did write this in the post was how many people raise their hands to volunteer for clinical trials and continue to do, um, with this new biotechnology that has never been authorized before. Um, the reason we're not ending up at the hospital right now is because our neighbors raise their hands and, uh, a key reason why we're sa- we're saving so many lives right now, um, and so you know, there's there's a lot of beauty in this response. I know that there's a lot of ugly as well, but there is there's a lot of beauty that's come out of it, and I think it's worth holding on to and looking at and appreciating and recognizing. Uh, because we're not in the same spot as we were in March 2020. And uh, we can thank all of us for that. Well, one of the things I'm most grateful for is that we've gotten a chance to really see the scientific community at work here and, and all the good folks who are doing incredible work. And I don't know that any of us ever wanted to tune into epidemiology as much as we have been over the last two years, but now that we are all tuned in, it's really just a wonder to see how your minds work. And I am just personally so grateful for the work that you have been doing. It has really helped put things into uh, very clear, concise terms at a time when you're kind of starved for that kind of scientific information. So I'm so grateful for all that you're doing, for you joining us here today, and for anyone listening who has not signed up. I I cannot believe you've made it 45 minutes into an episode listening to the doctor explain all of this without signing up. But if not, go find your local epidemiologist. I promise you will not be sorry. It's it's really just such a, a wonder and such a helpful tool here. So thank you so, so much for joining us. And I just appreciate you very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 